five-bedroom, four-story Georgian townhouse situated on one of London's most elegant garden squares. With a letting price of £13,500 per month, the only thing scarier than its price tag is its long-standing reputation as London's most haunted house. Sound like the home for you? Well, if you're in the market for a haunted house, you've come to the right place. I'm Caitlin Blackwell-Baines. Welcome to Haunted Homes. Fifty Berkeley Square, London, a tastefully appointed 10,000-square-foot terraced house in the heart of Mayfair, this poshest of properties comes fully furnished, with plush home furnishings as well as ghosts. Overlooking an historic Grade Two listed garden square below, the attic story features both stunning views and a monstrous entity that has been literally scaring the life out of occupants for centuries. Unlike several of the other properties on the square, which over the years have been remodeled, rebuilt, and most typically converted into office space, number 50 remains an opulent single-family home. Of course, much around it has changed in the nearly 300 years since its original construction. Where once, horse-drawn carriages and servant-powered divan chairs would have brought home the wealthy inhabitants of Berkeley Square, today residents can rely on Uber drivers and the conveniently located Green Park Underground Station just a five-minute walk away. Things continue to evolve. Neighboring Lansdowne House, once the site of an elegant neoclassical palace, the urban home to not one but two 18th century prime ministers, is now a postmodern 1980s era office block. With recent planning permission to begin construction on an even newer, bigger business development here, you will soon have access to over 14,000 square feet of retail and restaurant options right at your doorstep. So, if you're after the perfect synthesis of historic charm and modern convenience, you've certainly found it here on Berkeley Square. Yet, some things never change. Despite the new neighbours and updated decor, number 50 just can't seem to shake its enduring reputation as London's most haunted house. After all, it comes with nearly two centuries of hair-raising rumours, mostly centred on the aforementioned attic. But more on the frightening feng shui of the upper floor later. First, a little bit about the local area. Mayfair, an extremely affluent area of West London, is one of the most expensive districts in the entire world. The average home here will set you back about £4 million. But if you wanted to buy a five-bedroom like 50 Berkeley, which, to be clear, is not for sale but to let, you'd be looking at upwards of £10 million. For comparison, the national average for a four-bed in Britain is about 400000 But then... Even if you could afford to buy in Mayfair, you'd be hard-pressed to find available property. At present, the Althaney family, the rulers of Qatar, own more than a quarter of Mayfair's 279 acres, meaning if you moved in, your neighbours would include Middle Eastern monarchs. However, much of Mayfair is now commercial rather than residential. It is home to several swanky hotels, including Brown's Hotel, where once Queen Victoria took tea and Alexander Graham Bell made his first successful phone call. There's also Claridge's, where several members of European royalty took refuge during the Second World War, and the Dorchester, where military leader and soon-to-be American president Dwight Eisenhower ran his London wartime headquarters, and where the Duke of Edinburgh purportedly held his stag party the night before he married the future Queen Elizabeth II. Mayfair has long been a very posh part of London indeed, but it didn't start out this way. 
the area is named for a decidedly more populous gathering of people, the Festival of Mayfair, an annual celebration held in the area during the 17th and 18th centuries. The festival was established long before in the 13th century and was originally held in Haymarket before moving to the Mayfair area due to overcrowding. Open fields on the southwest outskirts of London were thus transformed into a swarming market and fairground. What began in the Middle Ages as a cheerful celebration marking the beginning of summer grew into a heaving bacchanalian affair. By the 17th century, popular fairground attractions included bare-knuckle boxing, fencing, eating contests, and women's foot racing. Many of the haughtier denizens of Mayfair were not amused by these churlish antics. The festival had already fallen into disrepute by the early 18th century, and in 1764 the event was finally abolished, partly thanks to the local lord, the 6th Earl of Coventry, who rallied his aristocratic mates in supporting him in the campaign to stop the plebeian public nuisance. Of course, by this time, the area was a respectable upper-class enclave, and has remained so ever since. The origins of Mayfair's major redevelopment as a posh residential district are in the 1677 marriage of Sir Thomas Grosvenor, 3rd Baronet, to Mary Davis, heiress to the manor of Edbury, an estate in what is now the borough of Westminster. The 500 acres of land that came with her dowry probably didn't seem quite so special at the time, but it would soon become priceless. Sir Thomas's 21st century ancestor, the 7th Duke of Westminster, is today the wealthiest man in the world under the age of 30, with an estimated net worth of £10 billion. This is part due to the 300 acres of land in Mayfair and Belgravia that his family still owns. Construction on high-end housing in Mayfair began in the first half of the 18th century, with a London journal reporting in 1721 that the ground upon which the Mayfair formerly was held is marked out for a large square and several fine streets and houses are to be built upon it. Sir Thomas Grosvenor's son, the fourth baronet, was busy overseeing these plans. This was the beginning of Grosvenor Square, one of three elegant squares constructed in the area during the period. There was also Hanover Square, named in honour of King George I, Elector of Hanover, and then of course Berkeley Square, which was named for another aristocratic local, John Berkeley, 3rd Baron Berkeley of Stratton. This square was constructed along the back garden of the Baron's pre-existing home, Berkeley House, later Devonshire House after it was sold to the Duke of Devonshire. The square was laid out by William Kent, then one of the most celebrated architects in the nation, whilst the houses themselves were designed by various individuals, including Kent, as well as Robert Adam, the leading proponent of the newly fashionable neoclassical style. The architect of 50 Berkeley is unknown, is believed to have been built in about 1750, but likewise its first occupant is a mystery. Legend has it, a young woman known as simply Adeline lived at the address at some point in the mid-1700s. Abuse at the hands of her uncle purportedly led her to jump from an upper-story window. Her leaping spectre has supposedly been seen ever since, with first sightings occurring as early as 1789. But of course, there is no historical document of the ill-fated Adeline. It is, however, well documented that Prime Minister George Canning resided at the property from about 1824 until his death in 1827. As far as we can tell, he's not the ghost that haunts 50 Berkeley, though his presence remains in the form of a small blue commemorative plaque affixed to the exterior. The next occupant was the Honourable Elizabeth Curzon, an aristocratic widow who died there in 1859 at the age of 91. Like Canning, Curzon seems to have moved on without issue. The same cannot be said, however, for the following resident, 
One Thomas Myers, the son of Thomas Myers the Elder, a wealthy nabob, i.e. a man who made his fortune in the service of the East India Company, and Lady Catherine Neville, daughter of the second Earl of Abergavenny. Myers the Younger moved into 50 Berkeley Square at some point shortly after the death of the elderly Madame Curzon, and from here on out, things get spooky. Now, this isn't to say that Myers is necessarily responsible for the haunting of Number 50, but his strange behaviour most certainly contributed to the stories that subsequently swirled around it. Firstly, it should be said that, had he been alive today, Myers almost certainly would have been diagnosed with mental illness. That he was left alone, untreated, in a previously respectable home that was allowed to descend into squalor is one of those regrettable injustices of the past, and it makes this story equal parts sad and scary. Mr. Meyer's tragic tale is recounted by one of his maternal relatives, Lady Dorothy Neville, a society hostess, horticulturalist, and writer who wrote of her eccentric kinsman in her 1911 memoirs. According to Lady Neville, the real cause of 50 Berkeley's weird reputation was this. Mr. Myers was exceedingly eccentric to a degree which bordered upon lunacy. Many years ago, he had taken 50 Berkeley Square with the intention of living there with his wife, for at that time he was engaged to be married. He got the house, I believe, on very advantageous terms, as there was already some idea about it that it was haunted. But this as it may be, he made every preparation to receive his bride in it, ordered furniture, carpets, pictures, china, everything. But a few days before the day fixed for the wedding, the lady to whom he was engaged threw him over and married another man, which affected him so terribly as to shake his intelligence and render him exceedingly eccentric, if not worse. He did not give up the house, but remained there, leaving everything in exactly the same state as when he had heard the news which had ruined his life. The furniture was left just as it had been moved in, while some of the carpets were not even unrolled and remained for years tied up just as they had left the warehouse. The whole house fell into a state of disorder and decay, nothing ever being done to it. During the day, Mr. Myers, whose presence in the house was not believed in by the neighbours, remained quiescent, but at night time he would flit about, rambling from room to room, producing in his nocturnal progress the weird sounds which occasioned so much gossip. Deserted and mournful by day, its windows black with the dust of years, the old house would occasionally appear to be lit up at the dead of night. No one was ever seen to go out of it, though coals and provisions were observed to be delivered to a servant whose reticence baffled all inquiry. So, like the male counterpart to the woeful Miss Havisham in Dickens' Great Expectations, Mr. Myers purportedly lived out the rest of his days in the house in perpetual agony and solitude, forever mourning the loss of his true love. More colourful iterations of the tale state that he locked himself away in the attic, driving himself mad and eventually transforming into the dark spirit that would go on to haunt the house. But in Lady Neville's slightly more staid and balanced version, we're essentially told that the poor man simply lost grip with reality, he had a mental breakdown, and began practising nocturnal habits, reclusive behaviour, and what today might be described as something akin to hoarding. The well-to-do neighbours, likely put off by the fact that Myers had let the once elegant home grow shabby and baffled by the strange lights and sounds emanating from it at all hours of the night, began to whisper. Rumours mounted. What on earth was going on at 50 Berkeley Square? Was it haunted? Soon it was more than just the neighbours talking. Reports of the supposed haunting cropped up in newspapers across the country. 
In December 1876, it was reported in the North Wales Chronicle that the London Association of Spiritualists were desirous to begin operations at a large house in Berkeley Square, which has had the reputation of being haunted for nearly a century. This was, after all, the golden age of paranormal research, and the London Association of Spiritualists was just one of many newly established societies devoted to the study of the supernatural. The background laid out in the article is largely the same narrative put forward by Lady Neville, an eccentric and wealthy old gentleman, a broken engagement, and the ensuing seclusion. The unnamed gentleman, clearly Mr. Myers, is reported to have shut himself in his big house with two or three crusty servants like himself, and there lived his withered life without admitting a stranger over the threshold until death overtook him some two years ago. It goes on to concur that the gentleman's unusual habit of roaming around at night, lantern in hand, inspecting all the door locks and windows, helped generate the home's unusual reputation. Crowds of onlookers in the square, it states, would gather to watch him glide through the darkened rooms, his outmoded dress making him appear as though he'd just stepped out of an old portrait painting. So, the consensus seems to be that the ghost of Berkeley Square was really just poor old Mr. Myers. And yet, the article clearly states that the mansion had a reputation for being haunted for nearly a century, long before Mr. Myers' tenure, something which Lady Neville alludes to also. Incidentally, it is also reported here that Myers had been holed up in the house for 50 years, when in fact he'd only resided there for 15. Clearly, somewhere along the line, there'd been some miscommunication. The confusion may lie in the fact that the details of this local legend seem to have been conflated with those of another this one also involving an ominous attic. Across the square from 50 Berkeley runs a radial road, Bruton Street, where a century before Meyer's time stood a milliner's shop run by a murderous seamstress called Sarah Mitre. Seems Sarah had the rather unpleasant predilection for abusing her young shop assistants, poor and often orphaned apprentices who were provided free lodging with her in return for their labour. One of her unfortunate victims was Anne Naylor, a girl with a supposedly sickly constitution who could not perform her duties as efficiently as her more capable colleagues. For this, she incurred Sarah's sadistic wrath. In or around the year 1758, Anne attempted to escape her ill treatment at the Mitre Millinery, only to be swiftly captured, returned, and confined in a small upper chamber where she was permitted only meager amounts of bread and water. A second attempt at escape ended far worse. Fleeing into the street, she accosted a young milk carrier, begging him for help. Before he could, however, Sarah's daughter and accomplice Sally caught up with the poor girl and dragged her back to her garret prison. Here, Anne was viciously beaten over the head with a broom handle before being hogtied to the door in a manner which prevented her from being able to sit or lie down. She was kept this way for days on end, eventually starving to death in the excruciating position. Sarah and Sally then stashed the body in a box in the garret, where it stayed for several months before the stench became so strong it threatened to expose their evil deed. So they dismembered the corpse and chucked the pieces in a pool of mud at the mouth of a Camden sewer drain. They might have gotten away with all of this if it hadn't been for a falling out between mother and daughter. During particularly heated arguments, Sally would often threaten to reveal their secret, yet for years she kept her mouth shut. It wasn't until 1762, when Sally had left her mother's charge and taken up a position as a servant in a house on nearby Hill Street, that she confessed to her employer their dark deed. In the end, 
both mother and daughter were executed for their crime at Tyburn Gallows on the 19th of July, 1768. So what does this have to do with 50 Berkeley Square and poor old Mr. Myers? Well, in truth, very little. But it was a ghastly event that occurred in relatively close proximity, less than half a mile away. It clearly left a dark stain on an otherwise pristine neighborhood, and somehow that stain seeped into Berkeley Square. It was often said that not only was the attic where young Anne met her fateful end haunted, but so too was the residence where Sally confessed the crime. The latter was a property in the corner of Hill Street, at the southwest corner of Berkeley Square, just a few doors down from number 50. Perhaps then, when neighbors started hearing strange sounds in the middle of the night on the west side of Berkeley, they naturally assumed they were hearing the restless spirit of Sally Mitre. It seems most of the longtime residents of Berkeley Square readily acknowledged the rumors of ghosts, but there didn't seem to be much consensus on their origins, identity, or even their exact location. In December of 1885, a journalist from the Leeds Times resolved to get to the bottom of it. He reported, The idea of a ghost whose habitat was close to Piccadilly and Bond Street so caught my fancy that I determined to investigate the matter. I went to Berkeley Square and looked about for some local authority whom I might interview. To my joy, I saw approaching an elderly and intelligent-looking turncock, a turncock being an official in charge of turning on the mains water supply. Said I to him, Can you tell me which is the house they call the haunted house? Oh yes, he replied, it's over there. Number 51. Wait, number 51? The turncock goes on to inform the journalist that this house was purportedly planned for demolition under the instruction of the gentleman residing next door who purchased the abandoned and derelict property some years earlier. Well, the Leeds Times report only seems to have muddied the waters. Was number 51 the haunted house all along? Or was the journalist simply misinformed? He may well have been, given that number 51 is very much still standing, and although it has since been converted into modern office space, it boasts some of the best-preserved Georgian architectural features in all of Berkeley Square, rather suggesting it never experienced much neglect. But let's return to 50 Berkeley Square, where, in November of 1874, the tragic tale of Thomas Myers came to an end. He expired at the age of 71, alone but for some dutiful and close-lipped servants, leaving all his worldly possessions to his sister, Mary. Not that those withered old possessions meant much to Mary, given that she had her own Mayfair manse on Tilney Street much tidier and more comfortable than her brother's derelict mess. Rather than take occupancy, as her brother's will had suggested, she simply let the lease expire, leaving the house empty for years to come. Now, if it had been Mr. Meyer's eccentric behaviour alone that generated the rumours of the haunting at 50 Berkeley Square, then that should have been the end of the story. But it wasn't. Far from it. Sadly, our time today is up. If you want to learn more about this unique property, the most haunted home in London, you'll have to come back for another tour. Shall I book you in for next week? <laughs>